Hello and welcome to this podcast on the messy reality of qualitative health research. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Boylan and I'm the Director of the Postgraduate Certificate in Qualitative Health Research Methods here at the University of Oxford. Today I'm joined by Dr Laura Griffith, a former academic who now works in public health. Hello Laura. Hello. Welcome, it's good to have you. Thanks for having me. Laura and I have both worked in health research for quite a long time now. We've both done research about people's experiences of health and illness conditions that's published on healthtalk.org. Between us, we've studied mental health, motherhood, disability, smoking cessation, research processes and patient feedback, leading to quite varied CVs. So, Laura, you have an interesting history with qualitative research. How did you originally come to it? So I actually came to qualitative research at PhD level. So I had to uh, sort of swapping from an MA in critical theory um, and then coming into to PhD in uh, social anthropology. So uh, I was doing that and I sort of had to do a, a lot of catching up um, in terms of uh, social research and social research methodology. And I did uh, my PhD about the experiences of Bangladeshi mothers in the East End of London. So that required um, a period of uh, language learning in Bangladesh itself. Um, and, and that was also uh, useful sort of circumstantially. And then a period of about a year's uh, field work in, in London uh, and writing that up. And the research itself um, was initially going to be much more narrowly focused on the experiences of postnatal depression amongst uh, Bangladeshi mothers. Um, but it expanded from that question, I think, uh, to look at how the mental health and uh, well-being of Bangladeshi mothers was conceived of by the women themselves who were going th uh, through uh, childbirth and postnatal periods, uh, by health visitors um, and health programmes that were working with them, by the strategic health authority as was and in the literature. So it sort of uh, took postnatal depression as a focus and then went into lots of different areas, people and organisations to see how that, that was interpreted. So that, that was my sort of first bash at it, I think. And I knew that I came into to fields work um, very sort of quickly and early. And it was a, a bit of a trial by fire, I think. How, how did you come into What was your first experience of qualitative research? Well, it was similar to yours, actually. Um, so I started my PhD after a period of time being a music teacher, so doing something completely unrelated. And my background is in psychology. So I started this PhD in social psychology that involved developing a quantitative measure of social exclusion in children with acquired brain injury. But as soon as I started, it became apparent that there was no real justification for that. There had been no qualitative research done really to sort of explain why that was needed or even to, to explore social exclusion in children with brain injuries. So I decided to turn the thing on its head and do a completely qualitative piece of work um, that was about social inclusion, actually, because we, we decided that starting from a more positive point of view would be helpful for the people that were involved in the research um, and started to use a phenomenological approach to interview children with brain injuries and their mothers about their experiences. And like you, it was a complete baptism fire. Um, it was something that I really valued and wanted to do well. And um, I think that sort of being able to be flexible about, um, you know, the research that you're doing 
was something that was really, really important to me as one of the things that I valued in qualitative research. So being able to determine that the, the course of things wasn't going in the way that it could do and um, changing the focus of it was really, really helpful. Um, and I think we're we're already getting into some of these messy realities um, about qualitative research. One of the things you said there was about having to change your research questions, sort of similar to um, what I did as you went along. And I think that's one of the kind of messy realities of qualitative research, isn't it? That you think you're doing one thing, but you get out into the field and find out that you're actually doing another. That's exactly it. And I, I think how you phrase and focus the research question really varies. So for example, um, postnatal depression as a concept itself wasn't known amongst a lot of um, first generation Bangladeshi migrants or was certainly wasn't related to on a personal level. But I was interested then in a, a lot of um, areas around that. So people's ideas of what, say, postnatal depression was varied greatly from health visitors to, you know, sort of health policy versions of it and so on. Similarly, um, attitudes to breastfeeding. There was a, a low rate of exclusive uh, breastfeeding amongst a, a Bangladeshi population, but a higher rate of mixed feeding at six months than um, a UK uh, mean. And there were similar sort of suppositions about what a Bangladeshi population was like by various people who worked in the health services and so on that was therefore re relating to this complex reality and I think there's a danger particularly say in the anthropology of producing in that sort of a culturalized version that all your behavior is based on culture with a capital C rather than just this messy reality of where breastfeeding services are located, your living arrangements, you know, the practicalities of, you know, does breastfeeding work or not, those sorts of things. And the initial very focused question I was on had um, a series of very connected issues around it, which I find it much more useful then to go off and investigate. And so it was much more helpful to me to be doing an ethnographic approach, an observational one that could then include uh, connected observations that would help me provide the context for my initially far too focused uh, research question. Did you have that? Did you have any problems, I think, changing the methodology of your research as you went along? Yeah, I did. Um, I think one of the things that I initially had to do was convince my supervisors that it was a good idea. So I had to do the groundwork for the study that I was never going to do to prove that it couldn't be done. Um, or or not that it couldn't be done, that, but that now wasn't the time for it to be done. There needed to be other work done in advance of it. Um, so I had to do that. And um, the other thing was that I had to reconceptualize how I thought about research as well, because at that stage I was approaching things from quite a positivist stance, you know, um, I was always going to be doing some interviews with children um, to develop this measure. But they weren't going to be kind of in-depth phenomenological interviews, which is what I ended up doing. Um, so I had to change my entire view of, of how things are um, in the world and, and basically, you know, what constitutes knowledge and what can we know, you know, and how can we go about knowing it? Um, and I think the other thing was that sort of coming from a psychological point of view where quantitative research is definitely kind of more prioritised than qualitative research. It certainly was back then. I think it's better now. Um, I was surrounded by people who were doing much more quantitative things um, and, you know, sort of felt like I was stepping outside of my discipline a little bit in what I was doing. But I think the um, 
the value of what I did was huge both um, in terms of, of sort of the what I was studying, but also what I learned as a qualitative researcher. Um, I think there's, if you want to learn to be a good interviewer, you should start by interviewing children. <laughs> <laughs> because they do not conform to the traditional, you know, I sit across from you, I ask questions and you answer them. Um, they definitely sort of made me change how I viewed interviewing for the positive you know definitely definitely for the better <clears throat> and when I think that's the same same for me really I think in lots of the situations that came up when I was doing ethnography for example I was visiting the family in London of a family I knew in Bangladesh and they knew that I was doing uh, my research and so on and then um, there was you know a daughter-in-law there etc and they said oh you know she'll tell you about you know xyz and I was thinking you know oh gosh I've you know been through an ethics committee I've got participant but you know I haven't got any of my but people would just tell you you know about their experiences um, and it, my worry I think as a young inexperienced uh, researcher who would only just you know I hadn't I didn't have much institutional support say for uh, applying to um, an NHS uh, research ethics committee as it was then um, and uh, it, there was a worry that you know you weren't doing something properly that you know there was this very strict process that you had to adhere to and people were sort of just telling you information and not paying attention to uh, the, the guidelines that, that you had uh, written down and so if you got some information or you experienced something or you were aware of something that you didn't necessarily have the ethical say so to record in your research what do you do with that information so I think that in in one sense, it's very useful coming at qualitative research first from an ethnographic point of view, because there were more flexible boundaries around that. And there were different ways of including that information. So I couldn't include that information, for example, in an interview format, even though I did interviews for my, but I could include it as context. And I think that was really helpful for me. But suddenly being confronted with doing an interview in somebody's home when you didn't think you were doing an interview, et cetera. Those sorts of messy realities, I think, are, are, are very common, both by doing, you know, I think uh, qualitative interviews in a, in a formal sense suit some populations more than others. And so likewise, you're saying if you're interviewing children, sitting down face to face for an hour may not be the most appropriate methodology. Likewise, if you're doing community work, et cetera, then, um, you a level of sort of informal interaction is, is really helpful but there are ethical considerations around both of those yeah absolutely and I think you've you've um touched upon something there as well which is about um how you build rapport with people and how you sort of um become a good qualitative researcher when you're in the field because one of the things that we say when we're um, sort of filling in ethics applications or, or things like that is about building rapport and it's certainly something that's seen as crucial to developing relationships with participants so that they will sort of give honest and fulsome accounts of their experiences but it's not it's not something that's that you follow a formula to do is it you know there's there's mm -hmm. sort of multiple ways of doing it and um, what are your thoughts on building rapport? I think earlier on, certainly when I was doing that field work, rapport was built, say, by the fact that I um, could speak Stiletti and that was relatively unusual and therefore um, that was positively viewed by a, a, a number of 
participants, that I was young and inexperienced and that um, I was asking about motherhood. I wasn't a mother at that stage. And so people were eager to tell me um, as, you know, from an older person sometimes, or at least a more experienced person to a non-experienced person, what it was like. Um, uh, so I think um, rapport in that situation was built partly on my helplessness. Like if I interviewed um, a psychiatrist, they were keen to help a young researcher with their work. And sometimes I felt a bit disingenuous because I think they were thinking that they were just departing, you know, sort of instructing me about the way things were, whereas I was actually also interrogating that information, thinking about your thinking about the same you know, concepts, postnatal depression from all these multiple angles, etc. So I think in that instance, the rapport was built by my inexperience. And then later on in my career, I think the rapport was more built by my knowledge of a particular situation. So, for example, the um, research I did with the Healthy Experiences Research Group was about experiences of psychosis. And by that time, I'd, I'd worked quite a long time in um, with people who been diagnosed with acute mental um, health difficulties and the rapport was built by the fact that say talking about voices or psychotic experiences wasn't a usual thing to do but the fact that I knew about it had talked to people about it for years and so on I think some rapport was was built there because of the lack of inhibitions you didn't have to expect you know, explain for the first time what it's like to hear a voice. And I think the, that some of that was destigmatizing. So um, I think some of that helps as well. And then perhaps later on, I think it was built by the fact that um, I could perhaps influence a policy or a system, something that, that might be helpful towards them. So it was a knowledge exchange, I think, in that sense. So I think it really dramatically has varied in it during the course of my career. What about you? Do you think it's similar in that sense? Has it got in this sort of linear trajectory? Were you similarly helpless when you started off? <laughs> I certainly felt differently about it when I started, you know, and um, the the very first piece of research I did was, um, I mean, outside of sort of undergraduate projects, um, was an interview study with people about their perceptions of brain injury so what you know what did they think that people were brain, with brain injury were like um, and that was really interesting because I kind of I, I sort of approached it as this quite structured thing so I was there to ask questions and they were there to answer them the questions were well predefined I wasn't very good with flexibility and um, the iterative approach that I've later kind of come to develop and see the importance of um, and I think that the rapport that I built in that study certainly left a lot to be desired there's probably I probably could have done a lot better and then when it came to doing my PhD um, working with children it's very difficult to build rapport with children as an adult because you know adults are a are in a position of authority they're used to their parents telling them what to do their teachers telling them what to do and for children with brain injuries there was a whole raft of you know services involved charities you know occupational therapists physiotherapists the whole lot so you know here was me yet another person who was in authority even though I knew nothing about the experience and really had no authority to speak of um, but I drew on my experience 
from teaching and um, sort of rolled up my sleeves and got on with it. I spent time getting to know the children and coming to see them a couple of times before I interviewed them. And then I would literally get on the floor with them, play games with them, you know, and that's not the sort of thing you do with adults or it's not as overt um, in terms of what you do with adults. But I think um, the other thing was you, you said there that part of the rapport building was the impression that you could make change at a policy level or whatever. And I know that I've certainly interviewed people before who have thought that I have more authority than I do. And that's a tricky one because I, I never wanted to lead them to believe I was anything more than I was. So um, I think part of the rapport building there was having honest conversations about what I couldn't do. You know, so just being frank and honest about the limits of the research um, and about the limits of how it could be disseminated and focusing on what I was intending to do with it rather than, um, you know, what they hoped I was intending to do with it. But having a conversation around how I wish I could do more. Um, I think as a researcher, sometimes you feel helpless, don't you, about what you can and can't do. Is that something you identify with? Certainly. And I think I felt more helpless as I've gone along in, in that aspect. And I think earlier on, I thought, I genuinely thought, um, perhaps arrogantly, that, you know, if I knew you know, this situation was happening, you know, for example, you needed more money for therapeutic services and mental health. Now, this is hardly, you know, rocket science. Most people know that you need more talking therapy, more therapy, etc. Um, and I think I thought if I just told people that at the end of my research, then it would happen. And I think as I've <laughs> gone on and hopefully got less stupid about that, um, that realising the more interesting question is, well, if everybody knows that, what's keeping things the same? Why why is change not happening? So I think the, the mistake in my research is saying, therefore, we must need change. And it's describing, um, I think, therefore, you, it's particularly in ethnographic research, there's a, a falsity about uh, creating this sort of static reality rather than one um, which... I'm now more, much more inter interested in interrogating change. So looking at the policy rollout and see what works and what doesn't work within that and being a helpful partner in that rollout. For example, one of my later pieces of research, which was more in consultancy, was about a project which was called uh, RAID, which is now I'm going to have to remember the acronym. It's uh, Rapid Assessment Interface and Discharge. And it was about picking people up um, who'd come to A&E in crisis, in a mental health crisis, and getting much more um, effective intervention and support. Now, it was sold as a cost sa saving measure. So, you know, that's an expensive way for sort of people to enter the service uh, and so on. And actually, when I spoke to clinicians um, and people who designed the service and rolled out in different areas, and that, that was going to be different in an inner city area than it was in, say, rural Herefordshire and so on. Um, actually, a lot of the uh, interventions that had come around that were helpful in lots of other different ways. For example, they were much more helpful in in a generalist elderly care ward um, and much uh, uh, they skilled people much more in talking about mental health in a, in a general level. So it wasn't it was aimed as a sort of specialist intervention and it actually helped much more general conversations about how to approach mental health. And I think that was really interesting just to reflect that back. So it was looking at something in motion, a, a policy rollout in motion, rather than just saying at the beginning, well, it's difficulty when people present at A&E with a mental health crisis because everybody is 
very apparent to the people who are presenting at A&E and it's very apparent to the clinicians who work with them. So I think that that's the bit that's changed in the sort of messy reality is trying to look at something in change rather than trying to falsely describe a static reality. Mm. And tell me this, this, this sort of um, notion of trying to improve things with research and the limits that we have um, and, and you know what you've just described there, do you think there's any benefit to you being a qualitative researcher and looking in on that problem? I think again the benefit of um, the, the flexibility in the approach. So I think at core, so anthropological approaches, which is essentially what I was trained in, were was looking at well, and, and in sociology, sort of from defamiliarisation, what people said they do and what, what they actually do and having that flexibility. And that's not to catch people out, but it's having to look at the complexity. And as I said in, in my last example, sometimes you you can capture something which isn't captured elsewhere. So, for example, in a, a lot of the public health outcomes framework captures a, a version of reality of health improving in indicators which do genuinely matter. But a lot of uh, policies might be implemented or health improvement measures um, which are of benefit, but that benefit might be complex. Um, so alongside that, then you, and, uh, you get it aimed at a population better. You get the uh, ways of working captured more accurately. So if it's diff difficult or not for clinicians and um, support workers and so on to, to deliver. And I, I think you just get a much fuller version of what it is and isn't doing as a policy. Mm. So I think it, it matters who commissions the research, who you do the research with and where the research ends up um, in terms of um, its methodology, it, its usefulness and so on. And I always find, I think, that you start off wanting to do everything at the beginning of a research project, you know, produce an academic output, influence policy, you know, make change, be useful to the patients and the public. Um, but you run out of time, sometimes you run out of money. And who's commissioned the research and the way it works really makes a difference to what are the key outputs from your research. Um, so do you have any examples of who you've worked with making a difference to, to what you produce and the way you work? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I did some research about patient and public involvement that I think probably comes closest to, to getting to this issue. And um, so patient and public involvement is a relatively recent thing. Um, qualitative researchers have been doing it for decades in the form of, of participatory reaction research, um, although it's not quite the same thing. But they've been doing that kind of version of it for a long time. And then there was a move within health research to involve patients and members of the public um, in health research as experts in their own experience to sort of try and democratise research and to make it something that's a bit um, more palatable for people to take part in and I suppose to humanise research really. And um, along with Louise Lowcock, I worked on a project where um, I interviewed patients and members of the public who worked in health research. And I also interviewed researchers who involved patients and members of the public. And that was quite interesting because I, as a researcher, um, interviewing other researchers was an experience, you know, and um, there were some who were more junior than I was, some who were maybe about the same career stage and then others who were much, much more senior and experienced. And I think the thing was, I was speaking to them about something that had been imposed on the way they work. 
And for some, that was really positive and, you know, they could easily see the benefits of it. And for others, it wasn't as positive and it was, um, you know, something that made work a little bit more difficult. And I think that for them to sort of say that in a professional setting, um, in something that was going to be published in professional journals and especially with the potential for being identified um, in qualitative research. It was it was, you know, quite a big thing. Um, and I find that quite challenging to be able to reconcile how I felt about patient and public involvement and how I had engaged with it. And then to speak to people who maybe had differing views to me, who ultimately always asked me what I thought as well. You know, so I sort of had to na navigate that. So if somebody was very anti it and I was quite pro um, PPI, then it was something that I, I felt, you know, I had to have a, a, a quick think about how will this affect the rapport if I um, mm. divulge how I feel about what they've been telling me. Um, and so, yeah, that was quite interesting. And, um, you know, ultimately that research showed that patient and public involvement was something that was often done more by qualitative researchers in multidisciplinary teams and more often than not by women. Mm. I thought that was quite interesting because the narrative around it isn't, you know, um, PPI for women and PPI for qualitative research, but it's back to those old tropes about how we as women and qualitative researchers can more readily talk to people, which I think is another one of those kind of complexities that mm. we face in our research. Um, but yeah, I think that was in terms of sort of having to negotiate who the audience was for what I was writing when it came to the paper but also um the kind of the navigating the the power dynamics between myself and the participants who were essentially the same as me was quite an interesting experience it, it, it's very interesting what you're picking up then when you asked for your opinion about something and i, I was thinking about sort of what falls inside and outside the uh, the research and i think sometimes that's that's much more clear when you have an interview study so it's before the interview, during the interview, you, you sometimes get two different accounts. And um, but in sort of ethnographic research, it can be more easily edited because you you are yourself doing the editing. You edit your field notes, whether you like to think of it or not. You edit the mistakes that you do in the field work, you know. And looking at um, ethnographic research, you you know, people have had relationships with participants and so on. You know, famously in anthropological studies, and those have been edited out. So obviously, you get field notes version. Um, versus the personal diary version in quite famous anthropological studies. But if you're if you're trying to look at something which isn't very easily spoken about, so for example in PPI, generally that's supposed to be a good idea. People are supposed to welcome it and encourage it and so on. So I'm guessing that you get sometimes two difficult, uh, different accounts of the official version of yes we should be doing it and encouraging it version versus it's quite time-consuming and expensive and it's been imposed on me. Um, and then I think, say, with my research, looking at ethnic inequality and experiences of racism, I found that hugely challenging to think about ways ways of documenting that. And I think um, one of the first studies I did was about ethnic inequalities in um, acute psychiatric services. And it was very difficult to produce the evidence that we all, in a sense, knew was true, that there were huge inequalities um, in mental health services. But that was mainly looking at structural inequalities and that's very hard to get from an individual account. So we had some accounts of um, somebody um, 
being abused for wearing hijab and so on like that. But those weren't the kind of individual instances that um, they were more likely to be on a, um, a, a, you know, compulsory treatment regime, more likely to be rapidly tranquilized. And those sorts of things, which we knew from the figures, were more much more likely to happen. And it was very, very difficult to get an individual account which recognised this structural inequality. And I found that enormously challenging. But in a more sort of straightforward sense, I think when I was doing interviews about uh, people's experiences as um, carers of people who've been through psychotic episodes, I remember very clearly interviewing a woman who was um, uh, uh, an older white woman, I think she was about 70, and she was describing the experiences of her husband being admitted to a, a psychiatric ward. And she was clearly saying in the interview it was very difficult because, um, you know, we felt that we couldn't understand the doctors uh, there and so on, and we, we felt um, very disenfranchised, and she used quite sort of long words, formal language, and so on. When we were make, uh, making a cup of tea in the interview, she said that the problem was there are lots of black people in the ward. They were, it was quite a terrifying experience and we couldn't understand the doctors because they were all Indian. And there's no way she would have told me that in the interview. Mm -hmm. But rapport worked in a, in a slightly different way then. I think she was sort of envisaging a, a level of camaraderie and similarity with me that wasn't there. Um, and so it was a really difficult position for me to think, you know, normally if that was a, a straightforward personal conversation, I would call out the racism immediately. But in order to then continue on in the interview, you know, what what do you do ethically? You know, and I, I think I was very much working at the time, sort of listening to people's experience and accepting their reality. But if their reality was something that I was actually therefore deeply uncomfortable with, what do you do? <laughs> and, I, I, and I think that that is a question that's really hard to, to satisfy in that sense. Yeah, um, I'm nodding along furiously here because um, <laughs> I recognise so much of this from my own work as well. But also, I don't know about you. Um, I've I've sort of had sexist comments directed at me, um, and other sort of anti-Irish comments as well, which are <laughs> quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that um, you said there about sort of just sort of being there to accept their version of reality um I, that's not a direct quote but you know that sort of you, your role as a researcher isn't to challenge you know so I find myself laughing along with these things quite often and then going away feeling like I wish I could have said something which of course mm -hmm. you can't it's not what you're there for um and the other thing was that I can't think of any study I've done where a participant didn't give me some sort of confidential information outside of the recording you know and mm. sometimes that made that would have made a big difference to the type of data or to the, the to the story um, and other times it, it sort of supplemented what they told me already but was just maybe a juicier version of something mm. um, and I always thought that that's really really interesting and it would be amazing to do a study on that kind of thing so what are the types of things that people mm -hmm. tell you when they don't think you're recording or when they don't want you to to record um, and of course one of the really messy aspects of what we do and you already talked about this a little bit is that um, you can't separate these things out of your brain you know so what's data versus what you know about the experience from the chats you know while someone's making you a cup of coffee or you know, you're sitting on their sofa and, and petting their cat and talking about their kids and then they, they reveal something else, you know. Um, it's quite an interesting tension, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. you, you can't um, you can't separate that in the analysis, can you? No. And also, I think 
what what they know about you and and I think that that varies much more I think in an ethnography they know a lot more about you they have a continued possibly longitudinal relationship with you that may be friendship as well as work and I think in qualitative interview studies it's a a bit of both they have a sort of relationship with you you may be friends you you know sometimes I have interviewed friends for for studies or, or colleagues um but it's a sort of halfway house. And also, I think there's a different relationship. I think I've differed as I've gone along to what you reveal about yourself and the questions that they ask you. So um, likewise, you know, being put in a sort of uncomfortable situation where do I call out racism or not? Commonly in mental health, first question, as I say, would ask you is, have you ever experienced mental health difficulties yourself? And in ethnography, I would speak quite openly about mental health. And, you know, if it was a conversation that was just being recorded for me or I was note taking or, or something, I think that situation necessarily changes when it's being recorded, kept on a database by your employer uh, and so on. And you asked all, all sorts of things like I've been asked about um, mental health, uh, drug use. I've been asked about criminal records, etc. Um, and it, you think it, now I think I've come to the position if it's a much more sort of formal, cons- you know, consented process in an interview that actually we are doing. And, you know, they've consented to the interview. You haven't. And so I have got more closed, at least in the sort of formal section of, of the interview. And I, I have put sort of clearer boundaries, I think, as as I have gone on. Have you ever had any of that kind of boundary disruption? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely have. Um, and part of it was, you know, that the participants wanted to know that I was legitimate. So it wasn't just a case of, you know, I was some random person who had come in to steal their story and take it away and use it for my own benefit. Um, so I was often asked about what my experience with brain injury was. Um, and that was also by recruiting organisations as well as participants. Um, and I don't have personal experience of it, but I have family members who have experience of it. So I had that lived experience um, of knowing somebody and watching how they live their day to day lives um, to be able to draw on and, and use as reassurance. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't been asked anything as exciting as you about criminality or drug used <laughs> um, I have been asked about my marital status and um, also if I could get somebody a job which were interesting experiences <laughs> I did not get a job <laughs> but I did spend some time talking to them about how I had sort of progressed in my career which was again one of those kind of messy things because I wasn't there as a careers advisor um, or anything else but I think that's that's one of the things when you do research outside of a lab you know or where where it involves interaction between humans you have to acknowledge your humanity and be able to sort of talk to people in in a way that convinces them that you are genuine and can understand their experience um but it is it's very interesting what you say about the the things that you know you feel you have to be boundaried about in a professional sense and i think that um definitely more experience leads you to feel confident in what you're not sharing as well as what you feel you have to share because this kind of it's um an interview mimics a conversation doesn't it so you know you sometimes feel like the participant is expecting you to turn around and say what your experience is of the thing you've just asked them and of course that's not how it's done but um (laughs) the irony of this point will be made where I was going to say the the key thing that I learned when I was working um at Oxford was how not to interrupt she said interrupting you (laughs) (laughs) it was 
just how different the interview experience was um, to to a, a conversational experience. And I think doing ethnography, I didn't have to think about that as much because they were conversations and I felt it was sort of more ethical, you know, if you were sort of co-participants in, in that sense that they knew about your life and um, you knew about theirs and so on. And that's change necessarily as I say by having a more professional interaction but um, then also by learning and I know this sounds basic but to it's a very practical skill of genuinely listening so I had the experience when I first joined Oxford of people listening really really um, intently to my interviews and then asking me questions about them. I'd had people listen to my interviews before, that was no problem, but it was almost a sort of forensic level of analysis of where I left spaces, whether I laughed or not, you know, those sorts of things. And I think it genuinely changed um, my interviewing style, certainly sometimes my conversational style, like it had an impact actually on how I even listened to my friends because I realised that there was a time where I was sort of, I was waiting to speak rather than listening and then changing my response. And that has all sorts of, you know, implications beyond research. But it was that really close listening uh, to your interview technique that makes a difference. So I think um, philosophically and epistemologically, I was very concentrated on the broader world outside, you know, who they think you are, um, how you reflect on your identity, the purpose of your research and so on. But then actually, you know, thinking about the interview doesn't matter in a sense that much but then actually doing this level of close work about your interview technique is hugely important and I think can be very revealing yeah do, do you feel feel the same has your interview technique yeah how has your interview <laughs> technique changed because I'm sure it would have done oh it absolutely has done well it has and it hasn't in in some senses um and I think the the, well, two things. I'll tell you a little bit about how it has and hasn't changed in a second. But the sort of the difference between a conversation and an interview is the amount, for me anyway, is the amount of reflection that you do afterwards and also the amount of planning you do in advance. And I think that that's something that can be quite a surprise to people who are new to this or people who don't really understand qualitative research, because it's not just a chat, is it? You know, it's something much more than that. Um, but I think there's a level of expertise that you gain over the years in terms of doing what we call semi-structured interviews. So um, these things that you do quite heavily plan in advance. But the idea is that the participant takes the lead and um, gives their version of events. And you may not ask the questions you have predefined in advance. Um, and I think that that sort of thing where you put a lot of effort into planning and reflecting on your interview is really critical in terms of how you learn to do qualitative research. So one of those things is about being a good reflective learner and being reflexive about the impact you have on your research and your research participants. But yes, um, I told you briefly earlier about the very first set of interviews I did, which <laughs> was absolutely embarrassing, Laura. It was just horrendous thinking back on it, but it was quite a structured um, approach. And um, there was a prompt that I used after each question was, and is there anything else you'd like to tell me about that? And I kept asking this after each question because I really wanted to make sure that the participants really did tell me everything about what they wanted to, and I didn't know how else to do it. And it became very sort of repetitive and formulaic and um, felt uncomfortable as 
you know, for me as a researcher, I don't know how the participants felt about it because I didn't um, dare ask them in case they told me I was doing a terrible job, you know, but that taught me so much. So when I came to do my PhD interviews and in every interview that I've done since that echoes around in my head about how uncomfortable I felt with not um, sort of thoughtfully thinking about the questions um, and also not really listening properly because I mean I was listening and I was trying to ask questions based on what they told me um but the whole time I was thinking I really need to get everything from them that I can hence this prompt of is there anything else you'd like to tell me you know and any time in an interview where I've said the words is there anything else you'd like to tell me I shudder a little bit thinking about the time when I used it you know sort of 40 times in in one interview um but I think you know it's it it has changed in terms of what I feel confident about asking as well. So in some of the projects that I was doing, um, like I did a project with people with life-changing injuries, and that included people who had brain injuries, spinal injuries, limb loss, burns, pain conditions, you know, there was a whole gamut of things there. Um, and I remember thinking when I was doing that project that I felt very uncomfortable about asking people about some of the things that were now a regular part of their lives. And it took, some reflection and some practice to be able to say these are things that are important to these people I'm the vessel through which they share them it's not about me you know but that was something I had to learn you know I find that really hard it not being about me is still I have a, a lesson I have to learn but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you're exactly right and I think you can get uh, very practiced in a particular area so the um making an interview seem sort of natural naturalistic is a skill so at first when you're learning how to do something remembering all the different areas especially if you're doing sort of semi-structured interviews and you have to cover particular areas or questions um and but making it seem like a conversation can, can be very very difficult but then i think you can get very comfortable with an area so i was quite comfortable for example with doing interviews about mental health and then i went to do some interviews about smoking and cessation and rather arrogantly i assumed that these will be very different quite short interviews compared to you know somebody's experience of childhood trauma and you know uh, psychosis and so on but actually it was taught me such a, an important lesson i think in terms of the fact that with qualitative research you don't ever just nail down the subject to the subject only. So people, of course, had stopped smoking in various different situations in their lives. So some people had stopped smoking when they'd become a father and they'd you know, related it very strongly to, to that. So another person had um, stopped smoking because a close relative had died of lung cancer and, and so on. And other people's um, smoking journeys had been connected entirely to their mental health. So it was very familiar narratives in some sense. But I think it was a lesson I should have known beforehand that I thought I was going to be talking about sort of nicotine replacement and smoking cessation services or, you know, Alan uh, Carbox or uh, the rest of it. But um, uh, and then a a actually most qualitative interviews can't be contained in that in that neat sense. So they are they are messy and you might think you're going in to get one piece of information and you come out with a distinctly different set of information. Yeah, oh, that's such an interesting point. And it's one of the things I think that outsiders criticise qualitative research for, or maybe novice interviewers worry about, which is that people will go off on tangents. And I worry sometimes that people think tangents or people think that things that are tangents aren't actually tangents and that they'll miss the sort of really rich um, quality data 
if they try and steer people away from that. What are your thoughts on that? I think that it's an illusion to suggest that there there aren't tangents and that there isn't complexity in the first place. So any methodology you take to a complex, say, public health problem is going to produce anomalies, complex patterns and, and so on, and have a problem with data. So, for example, take the recent example about uh, vaccine uptake. Now, trying to understand um, why uh, vaccine uptake is different in um, people with different ethnicity is a really complicated question and exactly how you frame it. So framing it as vaccine uptake rather than the vaccine um, availability is uh, obviously going to be uh, different. It's going to say how you define ethnicity in a super diverse UK population where migrants come from over 160 different um, uh, population uh, countries. Uh, it's going to say you know how you talk about um, experiences and attitudes and so on and some of the practical difficulties about you know going right back to what I said about the beginning understanding everything through the lens of culture it might be about buses you know those sorts of things so reality is complicated by the practical and you know uh, um, much more sort of uh, theoretical approaches uh, to a problem so I think that any approach that gets annoyed by the complexity is actually just trying to sort of false, falsely box it up. But then I think qualitative researchers have the responsibility to distill to some extent the information that they're going. So, you know, thematically analyse what they're going. Don't just leave it as sort of descriptive, messy reality. Really address the so what question. And the so what question, I think, varies wildly between so what in terms of how do we get this to a publishable article you know what are the interesting themes that would be interesting both to that particular journal in that particular format etc or if you're working in a public health environment that may be a very interesting piece of information what's in our gift to change about it if there's nothing in our gift to change about it then why are we doing this research and so that is the more interesting question to me not will you go off on a tangent but if you do go off on a tangent can we do anything about it yeah oh that's such a fair point um and you also raise the naughty issue of analysis and qualitative analysis um which i want to quickly talk about as well laura um Qualitative research produces a huge amount of data and it can be overwhelming, can't it, when you start with the sheer amount of words you have to deal with um, and understand, never mind, try to make sense of or produce into a palatable framework that, you know, a journal will accept or that um, other maybe health researchers or clinicians will accept as an appropriate way of looking at this particular problem. Um, have you any thoughts on approaching analysis for novices or um, how how can we make this easier for students when they tackle it for the first time? I think be aware, in the, this isn't meant in a negative sense at all, but be aware of the limitations of everything. I think the fact that you get lo lots and lots of words in interview data, but be very aware of where that has come from in the first place, that this is a partial you know, it's a really a tiny amount of the words anybody ever says about their experiences that's been delivered to you. It may be focused and very interesting, but it's a limited version. And then I so I think 
I, you sometimes get the impression that you have this sort of sacred data that you therefore have to disentangle and so on. Just think you have a, a story of something. Let's try and make some sense through that. And then I think particularly um, if you in some interviews are very focused, for example, if you go along, say, somebody's care pathway and want to ask, you know, about their discharge or about their something or other, then. I think it makes sense to chunk it up into quite small chunks if you're if you're doing a very sort of focused and predictable uh, sort of set of research interviews. I think if you do narrative interviews, which are messy and go to places that you didn't intend and so on, I think I've always found it useful to use very, very broad categories so that you keep the integrity of the narrative, that you can see where it fits in terms of somebody's story, and that you don't make too much work for yourself. Because I can remember sort of starting off with sort of, you know, 10 codes, and then um, I think it was about 120 subcodes at one sense, because I was so interested in keeping sort of the integrity of, you know, framing that code, representing exactly what the participant had said, and not merging it into somebody else's uh, category and so on. But I think there. I not only created a huge amount of work for myself, but also I missed the point sometimes because I missed this uh, the sequential um, part of the interview. So I divided it up too much. So, for example, I was asking actually about narrative and uh, nicotine replacement therapy, and they a participant gave me an example of it helped, and then they thought from it and said, well, what actually helped was etc etc. But I had coded nicotine replacement therapy and left the next bit which wasn't actually about it but but that obviously reflected on the bit that they just said so if I cut up my data too much I'd have missed that sequence that the because of which is essentially a narrative form this happened because of this because of this this followed this this followed this and that's sometimes what you miss out I think if you go into too much detail into thematic analysis. Mm. Oh, it's a very good point. And, um, you know, I think that for me, the lesson that I've learned is just about getting started because, you know, it's it's it can feel really overwhelming. And especially when you've got multiple interviews echoing in your head and just sitting down and getting started with it is very, very helpful. And um, I think I might, in my experience, mirror some of your experiences in that when I was doing phenomenological research, a lot of it is individually focused. Well, it's all individually focused. So um, the complexity there and the messiness was trying to get at the kind of richness of each individual experience while still being able to make sort of um, sort of some claims about the group itself. So all of these people together, what is this like for them? And then thinking about this on an individual level and on a case by case basis, which is really, really tricky too. you know, because you're trying to retain that sense of individuality, um, which is often what we do in, in most types of qualitative research anyway. But um, I think that it's one of the things that I think people find hardest when they start. Mm is to kind of retain the sense of individuality, but also think about the, the group level stuff. Um, but I think, you know, what what's apparent in this conversation, Laura, is that qualitative research is messy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, I was just going to say the, the other thing that um, I think is important for qualitative researchers is to be able to sit with uncertainty and to know that at the end of your research, you're producing an answer or a set of answers, 
but you're not necessarily producing the answer because there is no the answer in existence. And I think that's that's exactly true. And I think um, you you receive a partial version of the world, but you you would do this through any research methodology. So you know estimates about infection rates in the country aren't accurate surveys you know nobody has <laughs> given PCRs tests to everybody in the country at, at the same point you know we're all describing a partial version of, of reality with the methodology that presents ourselves and I think um, the importance in qualitative research is to be able to look up so the the story I think I'll probably end on is thinking about um, your interviews are sort of sacrosanct, but I made the, the mistake of <laughs> um, my recorder not working one time when I interviewed somebody, and this is an absolute disaster. And I, um, you know, apologised profusely to the participants and so on, and they extremely kindly said, "Would you like to come and do it again?" At which point I sat, and they gave me an entirely different version of events to the uh, version of events I'd received the first time round, and none of these contradicted each other they were just in narrative form put in a different way so that the second interview was a much more sort of negative version of events than they presented in the first one and I've never known were they not feeling so well that day um was it because they knew me a, a bit better you know why was that but had I just had the first interview and the first experience I would have gone off and analyzed it and put it into in vivo and done my theme you know and come up with an entirely different version than I would have done had I had this second interview. And that that's the same for ethnography. I think you can learn things right at the end of your ethnographic research, which turns everything on its head a little bit. So I think whatever you're doing, whatever ever methodology you, um, you choose, has its messiness, has its incompleteness. And I think we often reflect on that as qualitative researchers, but I think that's that's one thing that's really quite universal. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think, I would end this conversation by saying that um, messiness is beautiful and um, it's wonderful to work in this type of messiness and to feel comfortable with it and to know that what you're doing is exploring complexity and not trying to sanitise things or narrow it down too much. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that. I, I think most especially and I think even if you if, if, for example, I'm doing a series of interviews with my own father at the moment about his life history and I'm learning all sorts of things. And this is somebody, you know, <laughs> I've done participant observation for 42 years now of my father, um, but I'm learning uh, lots and lots of things about him. So I think there are many, many sides to people and phenomena that we think we know quite well. So it's a deliberate line of inquiry that therefore I'm learning about somebody hugely more than I would have done otherwise had I not um, uh, done these series of interviews. So I think, it, again, it's a deliberate form of inquiry which can unearth <laughs> more messiness, you know, as you, as you say, a beautiful messiness. But it's a, it's a very helpful methodology for doing that. Yeah. Laura, that sounds fascinating what you're doing with your dad and I wish you the best with it. Um, you and I have known each other for quite a long time. We've had many, many conversations about this very issue, about the messy realities of qualitative research. But I think I've learned lots today from talking to you. So thank you very much for your contribution. Oh, thank you. Likewise. It's been a pleasure.